Well, good evening, church. Welcome back. We had a little bit of a Christmas, New Year's break, but we're back into our our midweek refresh devotional, studying close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel, coming to the end of chapter 12, and then we'll have uh, some interesting chapters on the second coming and the end of the world and some Bible prophecy and some other issues. So I hope you can uh, join us every Wednesday here, seven o'clock, have a Bible, just for a brief time of study in the Word together. I know you have your own devotions, but there's still something nice about all of us collectively. I mean, I know we can't meet, but collectively studying a passage together and sharing together. So this is Mark chapter 12, and uh, we're going to read 35 to 44. So get a Bible. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They were like celebrities. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And so there, there Jesus says, um, there's, there's judgment. I mean, even churches don't talk about it much anymore, but what people do with Jesus, it's not a neutral issue. Jesus said, these people, there's condemnation coming. There's wrath coming. They will receive the greater condemnation, 41. And he sat down, that's Jesus, opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. We don't even have pennies anymore. They're just not worth it. 43. And he called his disciples to him. Come, come here, I want you to see this, come here. Called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. What a passage of Scripture. It covers a lot of territory. I want you to notice how it opens up. Up until now, we've seen, as we've been working through Mark's gospel, uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they come to Jesus. We've seen at least four times, maybe five, where they come with these trick questions, trying to trying to uh, make Jesus look... Uh, illegitimate and and not the real Messiah, trying to trip him up with their questions. This passage marks a bit of a turning point because you'll notice in that 35th verse, Jesus is asking the question. 
So in this case, it's a little different. Jesus is initiating. He's going to them. He's taking it to them with a question. He asks. He's going to have some stern things to say uh, about judgment. He's telling them they're going to receive greater condemnation. So, so what is it that is going to be the basis of this judgment? What are they doing wrong? And the point Jesus is making with that quotation from Psalm 110, we'll look at it in a minute, is that, is that he, he was the kind of Messiah prophesied, predicted, prefigured in the old covenant. They, the religious leaders who were administering the old covenant, although distorting it badly, they should have been the ones to see who Jesus was. They should have recognized him before anyone else. They shouldn't have been trying to eliminate Jesus. They should have been worshiping Jesus. And so in this question that Jesus asks, he's setting the stage for their guilt and for their judgment. Okay, point number one. Uh, all of the Jews were waiting for the Christ. We, we say Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It means Messiah. And they knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So when believing people called him the son of David, this is what they were referring to, uh, of the ancestry, the, the line of David. And that expectation was rooted in a promise that God gave to David. You can read it if you want to look it up. It's in 2 Samuel 7, 12. God speaks to David, the king, and says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God speaking to David. There's going to be, uh, from David, from David's line, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a king a kingdom established. Now, if you were to read verses 13 through 17 of 2 Samuel, you, you would see that the unique feature of this kingdom, God says, and his, his kingdom is going to last forever. It's going to be an eternal kingdom. In other words, this, this wasn't going to be fulfilled in Solomon or any of the physical descendants of, of David at that time. This was going to be something different, a descendant of David who would establish an eternal kingdom. So there had been this prophecy, there had been this promise. And the New Testament then goes to great lengths to establish this. It's almost boring reading, but you read the first uh, 17 verses of Matthew 1. And, and the whole emphasis is Jesus of the line of David, a descendant of David. So Jesus is raising this issue with the religious leaders. This issue of who he was, how he fulfilled the conditions, a descendant of David who would be the Messiah. Point number two. In verse 36, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And here's what that psalm says. Psalm 110, 1. David himself in the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about that, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus 
it's, it's a strange kind of a text, but it was important to Jesus. He quotes it at least three times. One of them is in Matthew 22, 43, 44, in addition to our Mark text. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here's what I want to notice. I want to notice about uh, three things out of this Old Testament quotation that Jesus gives, because it can be confusing to a lot of people. First, I want you to notice Jesus' high view of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it's, it's not as though Jesus is content just to say, look what David said in Psalm 110.1. What Jesus says is, look what David by the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 110 verse 1. So you see this, this dual authorship. Human writers are certainly engaged and involved and used, but, but the words are the words of the Holy Spirit. You'll see this all through the New Testament. The way, the way Jesus, for example, when he's talking about marriage, he goes back and quotes, uh, the creation account. Man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. But Jesus doesn't say, look what Moses said. He says, here's what God says about marriage. So very clearly, the view of Scripture that's, that's adhered to throughout the whole New Testament is, and the Old, is that uh, this is a divinely inspired book. It's not just human authorship. It, it fits so well, doesn't it, with Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that's the first thing I see in this Old Testament quote. Jesus has this view of the Holy Spirit inspiring scriptural text. Okay, B, clearly in that Psalm 110 verse 1, David refers to Two lords, one speaking to the other. And if you look at Psalm 110.1, you would see, you'll see the distinction in the Old Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, that first Lord is all capitalized. It's all capitalized and, and, and refers to Jehovah God. So the Lord God says to my Lord. So if the first Lord is God, who, who, who's, who is this other one that David calls Lord? And why does David call him Lord? And, and so what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing is he's saying clearly, clearly, um, David's son is not just his son. David calls him my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. And so, David's son is not just an ordinary physical son. David's son is Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, divine. So Jesus goes to the very words of David to teach that David saw, David knew in the Holy Spirit as he wrote that his son was not just a physical offspring. There was more to it than that. The Messiah, who was his son, was also his Lord. And that's what Jesus 
wants these religious leaders to recognize. We can't imagine. We can't imagine how shocking, how uh, stunning this was. How could the sacred scriptures teach such a thing? Because all of these people have been raised. The, the whole, the whole uh, old covenant was teaching that there was one God, one Lord. It's right in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21 to 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Look at, look at Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So to this monotheistic people, Jesus quotes this old text pointing to himself as David's offspring, but not just human offspring, someone David would call his Lord. And so you have this forming of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Messiah was more than they were just expecting in terms of a of a earthly leader who would deliver Israel from Roman oppression. It was more than that. See, here's the third thing I see in this quote. Jesus underscores this, this prophetic element of the Messiah's triumph over his enemies. It's in, it's in Mark 12 in that 36th verse. Uh, until I put your enemies under your feet. I mean, perhaps Jesus, in making such a big deal, he quotes this at least three times, this verse. It was a big verse in Jesus' mind. Perhaps he wants his enemies, for now they, they mock him, they try and trip him up, they reject his authority, they make, they make everything, uh, that they can marshal against his kingdom and against his rule and against the truth of who he is. Maybe Jesus wants, wants them to have to face the fact that his enemies are going to be put under his feet. That, that there is a time of reckoning for, for this, this uh, rejection of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. That's still a pretty unpopular truth. Or here's something else. Maybe he wants his disciples, whose disciples who will, who will soon see Jesus crucified, who will run and hide. Remember? Maybe he wants, he wants them to see the encouragement in that prophetic text that the enemies would, they, they'll be put under Christ's feet. There will be deliverance. They will rule and reign with Christ. He will win the victory. He will win the day. So enemies are predicted. We need to understand that even today, following Jesus is life-giving and joyful. There, there is opposition. There are enemies. Enemies need to be warned. They will be put under his feet. Disciples need to be encouraged. Enemies will be put under Christ's feet. Okay, here's the third thing. Because Jesus was the Messiah, because he was God Almighty, and I want to just, I want to just highlight this once more. Uh, his victory was certain and judgment was coming. When you look at verses 38 to 44, here's, here's where you see it come out. Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay. Um, be sure of it. There is that note of judgment in the teaching of Jesus. You, you can't bleach it out. You can't overlook it. You can't omit it. If, if, if Christ and his gospel, if that's a wonderful thing to accept, it's a terrible thing to reject. There is this greater condemnation. And then now look how this, how this text wraps up. Pick it up again at 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Usually we don't watch what people put in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 43. He, that's Jesus, called his disciples to him. So there's something going on here that Jesus notices. But more than that, there's something that Jesus says, I, I, need, I need to make sure my disciples notice this. There's a lesson here that is so important. It's not enough that I see this by myself. I need to call them over and I need to explain something to them. So obviously this is a key principle in the mind of Jesus. He calls his disciples to him. Come here, come here. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Not just more than any we're putting in, but more than all. All of them together, she's putting in more. Striking. 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance. In other words, whatever they put in, a lot, they still had, they still had lots left over. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So now we start to see, there's a couple things that I want to wrap up with. We start to see why Jesus said there was in verse 40, greater condemnation coming to these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They would be judged for two things, for using religion to promote pride, ambition, and position. I see that in 38 and 39. Secondly, they would, they would be judged for using religion for personal gain. Devour widows' houses, 40. Using their religion for pride and position, using religion for personal gain. And so, and so now we see you frame it all. It's not accidental that when Jesus sees this poor widow putting in her penny, okay, the religious leaders going to be judged for using religion for gain. Fellas, come over here. Watch this poor widow. This is, this is what I'm talking about. So, what is so special about this poor widow? I remember vividly the day when, when this kind of hit me out of this passage. It is, to me, the most uh, counterintuitive and countercultural principle in the whole New Testament. There's this radical idea that Jesus wants to, wants to get across. I mean, certainly the wealthy had put in more than this widow. I mean, if they didn't do it the way we do it, but if the church was giving a tax receipt for their giving, the receipt given to the rich people would be way bigger 
than the receipt given to this poor widow and her penny. So, so there's a sense in which we say, Jesus, no, you're wrong. They put in a lot more than she did. And the only conclusion, and here's, here's the part that I will never forget when it dawned on me. It's striking. The only conclusion we can come to is Jesus has a different way of measuring my giving to his kingdom. How does he do it? You're giving. And I'm, I'm not, this isn't a beg for money. This is just, this is just looking at a, a really vital principle of New Testament teaching that is so overlooked. How does Jesus measure my giving? Does he do it the way the government does? Does Jesus measure my giving by here? X dollars were given to Cedarview Community Church in 2020. Is that how Jesus measures it? Apparently not. Because he says this woman gave more. Here's the principle. I hope you're ready for it. It's something I have to keep thinking about all the time. Jesus measures my giving not by what I put in the plate, but by what I keep for myself. It's kind of an ouch moment, isn't it? They gave, but it was out of their abundance. That They could easily give a lot and do everything else they still wanted to do. In other words, the, the giving of the rich didn't do anything to um, counteract their covetousness because they could still do all the things their hearts wanted to do with the plenty that they had left over. So, so their giving didn't, didn't safeguard their hearts from materialism. This woman, all she had, that it closes with those words. I, I mean, what did, what did she do when she left the temple that day? She put in all she had to live on. So there's the principle. Jesus measures my giving to his kingdom, not by the amount I give, but by the amount I spend on myself. And the idea behind that is not that Jesus is demanding. The idea is Jesus knows the danger of covetousness to my own heart. This is, this is his way of protecting my heart, not robbing it. It's, it's, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders, they were going to, in our text, be judged, receive greater condemnation because, because they used their religion for position and power and influence and it resulted in their material gain, money. If that's the danger that, that ends in judgment, then what's the cure? The cure is probably recognizing the, the greatest risk isn't that I will give too much. The greatest risk, apparently, is that I will keep too much after I have given. And so Jesus closes this whole thing about who Jesus is. The son of David, who's the Messiah, who's going to put all his enemies under his feet, who's going to rule and reign, who will judge, who will judge the proud, the arrogant, 
the, the greedy, the materialistic. And then he closes with, with, we would think this woman was reckless. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 she's smart. Quite a thing, quite a thing. That's a real text that we studied uh, together tonight. Let me just uh, remind you, Sunday morning, of course, we're all online now. 10 o'clock Sunday. Try and, try and do it at 10 o'clock. Like, like keep, keep the habit of the Lord's Day, even though we don't come into the building. We're going through 1 John. We're going to study the issue of, of just how important is holiness? How holy do you have to be to go to heaven? That's what we're going to study on Sunday morning. Sunday night, we're in a, I think, a pretty important series called Soul Food. Last Sunday night, we studied how do we get the 39 books of our Old Testament? How do we know we have the right books? I mean, um, uh, our Roman Catholic friends have an additional 13 books. Our Jewish friends have 27 less books. How do we know we have the right books, the authoritative books? We did that last Sunday night. This Sunday, I want to look at the New Testament. How do we get our New Testament and the 27 letters that we have in it? We'll be studying that. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, even when it, in, when it says things that seem uh, counterintuitive to our fallen thinking. And so I pray that you'll bless, bless the truth of your word to all of our hearts. When we can't be together, let your word feed us all together. We love you with all of our hearts, Jesus. Let your blessing rest upon Cedarview Community Church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you, church. Love one another. See you next Wednesday.